Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Deuteronomy 20 tonight. Uh, we're picking up where we left off. And we're starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. Did you want me to pause it or no? You're good. Okay. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So we're going to talk about battle and combat tonight. This is exciting for some of us. And I got to spend my whole work week geeking out on like battle strategies, Sun Tzu's art of war, all sorts of things, um, looking at just how the Lord thinks about battle versus how the world thinks about battle. Context. It's time for some context. We're in chapter 20, um, and Deuteronomy has been a second telling of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. So chapters 1 through 4 were kind of the intro. It was Grandpa Moses sitting down saying, here's why we want to learn the law. Here's why the law is important. Then in chapter 5, we got to see the Ten Commandments again. And then the, since chapter 5, we've seen expository teaching on each of the Ten Commandments. Moses is going through each one saying, here's the particulars of how these commandments work. Starting with the Shema in chapter 6 that goes with commandment 1. No idols in chapter 7 and 8. 9 and 10 were about remembering God's practice and what God's done in your life and putting him first in your thoughts. Um, Chapter 11 was living or living under the, the Lord's blessing, watering by foot versus watering by heaven. Remember that? Then we had the laws of worship in chapter 12 and chapter, uh, well, actually chapter 12 through chapter 15 were kind of about laws surrounding the kingdom work, that what it, worship should look like, what the Levitical priesthood should be doing, how they should be judging, how you deal with Chapter 12, how you deal with people in the church that are trying to entice people away from God, how you deal with people in the church that are aggressive towards God, how you deal with tithing in chapter 13, 15 through 18 were about civic responsibilities. Here's how governments should operate. And here's, in God's kingdom, governments shouldn't overwhelm people. They should be graceful. They should have mercy. There should be systems of mercy. And a just society protects the weak. And we see just law after law after law that restrains the power of government and the power of rich people. Um, so God sets this all up. Justice should be blind. You shouldn't do that. You guard and protect your neighbors as yourself, which is what Jesus took off. There was the law of Jubilee. We're not going to oppress people with debt and financial burdens. And then he, in chapter 19, it comes around to refuge cities. We're catching up to where we're at. And refuge cities were the courts of inquiry. There were people who could go who wanted to be running to mercy if they could. So if you kill someone unintentionally, which was the first accident, <laughs> right, um, that you would run to these cities. So it was to be taken serious that life was something that was precious. 
and you don't take life. So when it says thou shalt not kill, there are situations where there has to be um, there has to be some justice in the nation, but you don't. You take it extremely seriously. There's a process for it, and you do things methodically. So when a nation has to execute someone, that's not the same as having hate in your heart and murdering someone. It's removing someone from a society that's going to be corruptive of that society as much as possible. So the gravity of false witness is a big deal in chapter 19, and it's where we get that first encounter with the eye for the eye. Eye for the eye applies to people that are lying, and they're treated the same thing that they lied about somebody else. They're to be judged under that same law. So that's where that kind of comes into play in context. And how do you handle people in false witness? False witness is an affront against God because you're taking truth and you're making it your own. It's ultimately one of the worst things that you can do because it also corrupts the society and it destroys good people. So false witnesses are horrible. That goes right into chapter 20. And then there's times when a nation has to go to war. And that's how we're dealing with this. So in context, war is always a horrible thing. And we can all agree war is bad, but there are times God knows when Israel is going to be attacked and they have to defend themselves and they have to go out and do battle with people. And he's also commanding them in another context. So in the Bible, there's two kinds of war. There's war to take the promised land that God has claimed for his people, which is what's coming up. And then there's wars of defense, where you defend yourself against aggressors. And those two, two things are going to have a different set of rules in this chapter. So all of this is about heart work. So in the very beginning, we start in verse 1. When this situation has happens, and you see this army that's bigger than your army, the very first command is, do not be afraid of them. So again, with God, it comes back to the heart. This is what you were saying before we met. It just keeps coming back to the heart. So instead of getting your armies ready, doing strategies, fighting this way, um, tying things to your shield that scare your opponent, none of that kind of thing. It's simply watch your own heart when you find yourself in a battle, especially when the battles are there. It says when you're going to war, um, be afraid. And then it references Egypt, which is interesting because the argument here is don't be afraid, you know, because Egypt. And that all just happened. So the reference point there is people that would have vividly remembered those things. When we go into war, we have to start thinking about that too. And I, I know this is for the Israelites going into Canaan, and I get that, but the typology here is amazing. We also have spiritual battles to fight. So I'm going to spend a lot of time going back to the New Testament today and looking at some of that spiritual warfare and the alignment that it has to some of the laws that are in Deuteronomy. We get provided for for God. We have a powerful God. We have nothing to worry about with God. So it doesn't matter how big the opponent is or how big the battle is. And I'm reading this and getting a phone call saying, we'd like you to have a meeting with Supreme Court Justice Alan Payne. I'm like, oh, great. It doesn't matter who the guy is. He needs Jesus, just like everybody else does. And he may or may not want to hear that from me, but we'll see how that goes. We'll see if the conversation's open. Um, but to die doing God's work then is a pretty good day. And this is a perspective the Bible kind of has. Life isn't, what's precious is our relationship with God. We don't cling to our life with a tight fist. We just open it up and let it go. We give our life so that we can gain it. And battle kind of looks like that. The first thing is, if you're going to go to battle and there's a huge army out in front of you, stop fearing because maybe today's the day you're going to die. Maybe it's not. But either way, God's got it and his, he's got it taken care of. So, if that's okay for me to live as Christ and to, to die as gain, uh, Philippians 121, 
reasons why you don't multiply your house horses was back in uh, chapter 17, verse 16. And the reason they gave for not multiplying Israel's horses, which is why they, it says when you go out to battle and you see that they're more numerous than you, meaning that Israel's going to always have enemies that are bigger than they are. God likes it that way because he gets the credit that way. And if he puts you up again in battles where you clearly have the advantage, God gets zero glory from that. You get all the glory for that. So in this case, he's setting them up to not multiply their horses and then gives them instructions for when they're in battle and they're outnumbered. So this is, you would think people would be questioning that at this point, but they've seen enough of God to where they're not questioning it. They're like, okay, let's go. Amen. Let's move forward. So despite the real danger, they're commanded to not be afraid because the Lord is with them. And it always, it, it, I don't know, for me at least, doesn't it always feel this way when you get into those situations? You always feel a little outnumbered, outmatched, in over your head, doing two jobs because they haven't hired somebody at your work. And you got to just keep up and you're trying to do that. But the problem is nothing when it comes to God. God plus one is the majority in all these situations. So we're just going to keep seeing that. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And it goes vice versa too. 1 Corinthians 3.19. When we say God's in the majority, the world doesn't really get that. So when everybody is saying something and it's moving in one direction and the Christian stands up and says, eh, I'm going the other way we know that we're in the majority and we can actually see that clearly. Even though we might not see it with our eyes, we can see it with our hearts. We move forward. It applies to personal judgment too. First Samuel 16, 7. Look not on his countenance. This is when Samuel is going in looking for the new king. Don't look for what they look like or in the height of his stature because I've refused him. For the Lord sees not a man or not as a man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When you go into battle, and your enemies look tough, don't be afraid. God's got that. So if you've got a problem or a fear, our response in that situation should just be to ask God to help with it and then expect that to happen and wait for it to happen. Ask him to take care of that problem and just watch. Trusting in the Lord is a major theme that comes through the Bible, and we see it in verse 1 here. Psalm 4, 31, 37, 40, 73, 115, 118, 125, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. It's such a consistent theme that we kind of wear it out sometimes. So don't let that wear out. Refresh that in your brain. Trusting in the Lord is how we handle our problems. Of course, then we take on more problems. The eternal promise is that we can trust in the Lord forever. It's not, that idea of trusting the Lord is not unique to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 4 said, Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. The same God that they could trust in when they were outnumbered is the same God we can trust in when we feel like we're outnumbered. The topology is just perfect, right? So who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, God, I think it's interesting, God gives them evidence before he asks them to trust him. It's not a blind trust at all. Trust me because of remember what you've seen. Remember what God's done. And as we get older and watch the Christian life progress with our friends and family and neighbors, God takes little things, and when you're faithful in them, he takes you to the next biggest thing. And it's kind of this cool cycle that God takes a believer through, that each time you trust in the Lord and you see him come through for you, it gives you that visible trust that you can then put your faith in the next thing and have anticipation for what's going to happen. And as God develops and matures as believer, the things get bigger and bigger and bigger. 
and more exciting. And then you can kind of tell people about what's going on and how that works. Verse two, so it shall be when you're on the verge of battle. This is like when they're all standing there looking at each other. Verge of battle means you can, you're on the edge of something and have total visibility of what's about to happen. You're at the top of the roller coaster and you can see what's in front of you. It's that feeling, the verge of battle that happens right there. The priest shall approach and speak to the people, which is, again, counter to the intelligence of the world. You don't expect a priest to come and give the battle cry talk. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. So the priest comes and states the obvious. Do not let your heart faint. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble or be terrified because of them doesn't say you're not going to die. doesn't say you're not going to get beat up. Israelites did die in battle. They did get beat up in battle. They even lost battles. It does say, don't be afraid. So this idea that the priests are the voice of God speaking to them. In Numbers chapter 10, the priests would blow trumpets at this moment too. And all the battle directions in an Israeli battle was done by trumpet blast. And the idea that you listened to what the priests said and then you followed the commands of what the priests blew in their trumpets is this idea that the priests represent God on that battlefield. And they would carry the ark out in front of them. So they would have that image of God in front of them as they battled too. So even the scripting here, God tells them in verse 3 what they should say. So you can bet when the Israeli priests got out there before battle, they would memorize this and they would say it. In the same way that we know the Lord's Prayer, soldiers knew verse 3. And they would dig that into their souls from boot camp on. But then you can you get this idea that battle speeches should clarify what the battle is. And if they don't do that well, soldiers don't know why they're fighting. So I thought to myself, what's the finest rah-rah speech ever right before a battle? And you gotta go to the movie Braveheart. So in Braveheart, William Wallace gets up in front of the Scottish people, they're not wearing underwear, and they're about to go into battle and he kind of stands in front of them and he says, you've come to fight as free men and free men you are. Older people remember this maybe. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? Yeah, you can fight and you might die. Run and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds, it's hard for me to not hear him saying this. Many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance? to come back here and tell your enemies that they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. That's the tone that we should read verse three with. That's what's going on when the priest is talking to men that are about to go die. Is that idea of hero Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Don't let your heart grow faint. Don't be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. That's what's going on with these priests. So they would come out and do it. So how do God's people fight? We turn to the Lord and we, and we trust in the Lord. That's how we fight. It's not a battle plan. It's not a strategy. It doesn't say use spears. It doesn't say use horses. In fact, it says don't multiply horses. It doesn't even have masterful plot lines and strategies. Throughout history, most major empires had a way they fought battles that helped them win battles. Not the Israelites. And they're still on the planet even though they have nothing that they're known for in combat and battle. They just copied other people around them, right? Even today, most of their military was developed in the United States and they just inherited it or bought it. 
For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. That's very practical. Joshua 3.10, God's presence is known in this situation. You're just going to, you're, if you're on the top of the roller coaster looking at a battle, you're about to see God move. Not only don't be terrified, get ready to watch God do something amazing because that's what battles look like. The human heart grows faint when we think of a fight, when we think of a battle, when we think of what's happening. But what we should be doing is saying, not only don't get terrified by it, but think, oh, God's going to move. How many people have we talked to in the last six months that are all worried about our country right now? That there's battles being fought. All right, where's God going to move? And if you start looking in the right places, you start seeing what's happening all around our country right now is a massive revival. And it's pretty darn cool. Or your church is shut down. One of the two is happening right now. But that's something that's really exciting when we start seeing that sort of thing happen. When a battle happens, God wins. He's already won. And he's about to do amazing things. And this is starting here. This narrative goes through the Bible all the way to the book of Revelation. This is how God fights his battles. He's already won them. And he just moves forward because if God wills something, it happens. In Joshua 3, 4, it says, that you might know the reason why God fights our battles is so that we can learn and grow from it. It's why he puts us in trials and battles so that we can become better at the other end of it. God shows his presence to everyone that steps forward knowing that God is without fail. God doesn't lose. So we might die in this life and okay, we just move on. Examples. It looked pretty dismal for Hezekiah, right? He had 185,000 Assyrian troops sitting outside the city of Jerusalem and they had been praising the Lord too much and didn't bother to build an army. And so he, what does he do? He goes to the temple and he starts praying and he lays it out before the Lord and says, Lord, it's your city, it's your empire. I'd like to see what you're going to do here because there's 185,000. If Syria was on the rise, they were kicking butt. They'd conquered everything north of Israel. They'd even conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. In one night, in 2 Kings 19, 30, chapter 19, verse 35, God wins. Just in one night, one angel shows up. God's got hosts of angels. One angel shows up, 185,000 dead people. Now their problem is, what do we do with a bunch of bloating bodies? Honestly, which problem would you rather have? And so the Israelites have seen this again and again and again, and God's people keep seeing it too. It looks pretty dark for our hero, but the light's about to shine. And it's just the biblical narrative again and again and again. There's Daniel in the lion's den, right? There's David in his cave. There's Jesus before Herod, right? And he's got to figure out what's going to happen there. King Asa in 2 Chronicles 14, 11, if you think Hezekiah had it bad, he faced a million, a million soldiers in the Ethiopian army that came to attack Israel. A million. And Asa cried out to the Lord, his God, and he said, Lord, it's nothing for you to help. I love this. We don't even get King Asa in Sunday school, typically, right? Unless you went to a better Sunday school than me. This is a great story. Listen to this. Lord, it's nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power, help us, Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. Lord, you're our God. Don't let man prevail against you. Asa, man, he got it right. 
He understood that the battle isn't between me and you or somebody else or anybody else. It's between God and that people. And if God's judged that people, they're gone. And that's what's going to happen to the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Hittites and the Jebusites. Anybody who's sitting in the promised land after 40 years of being told by their own priests, get the heck out of there, God's coming, and they're going to stand there in defiance against God, he's going to judge them. And it's between them and God. And the people of God simply move forward. He'll fight our battles. We don't fight them. Even when we get to know what the miracle is, or in that story with Asa, we don't even get to know what the miracle was. It's just that God takes care of them. It says, so the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Like the Bible doesn't even bother to tell us what happened, which is why it doesn't end up in Sunday school. But I think that's amazing. And as adults, we can be like, it's just not a thing. It's exactly what Asa prayed. That thing that we think is intimidating, like a million people ready to kill us, right? Or a street mob coming with torches. To God, that group of people is nothing. It's just nothing. And the Bible doesn't even record what God did because it doesn't matter. It's God's battle. He's already won it. David is celebrated for, for pitting himself against Goliath, right? We know the David and Goliath story. So I'm not going to recount that. But I am going to go to a part of that story what David said to the other men in the camp, you remember? And he's just following Deuteronomy 20. He's just sticking to this principle. First Samuel 17, 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him and said, what shall be done for a man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is a shepherd boy coming in to bring lunch for his brothers because he's too young to fight. And he says, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? You're talking about a living God? Like not a God that's in a statue somewhere, but the real thing? And you're going to defy that? Good luck. I don't want to be near you when the lightning bolt hits. That's why David used a sling. It's just my opinion. I don't think that's biblical, but I'm just saying. So he marches up to the king. He says the same thing. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David has no doubt. It's why he was a man after God's own heart. He just has no doubt. I admire that, but I'm not that. I don't know about you. When I'm up against an enemy or a fight where I don't think I got the tools for it, I get there's a part of me that's in deep fear that I got to wrestle with. I got to decide how to deal with the fear. That's okay. God helps with that too. When God handles the conflicts, it's not about the strategy, the weapon, what you're going to say, how you're going to do it, what you're going to do. You're going to get the words when you walk into the environment. You're going to get the tools you need because God loves you. And he goes on with like these kind of strategies. So in this, Sun Tzu's Art of War actually agrees with the next strategy coming up in verse 5. A huge army in battle can be successful, but it's also very expensive. And it creates long delays, and, then, and it makes a dull army and can experience sharp defeats. Sun Tzu's Art of War, 2, 1 at 12. There's an idea that big, big armies don't always win battles. And that's a principle that some good generals understand. So, <laughs> or the subtitle here is that kids don't fight, adults fight. And in God's country, in God's land, when there's battles that are going to have to happen, he doesn't want children fighting the battles. Grown-up people fight the battles, not the kids. So verse 5, the officer shall speak to the people saying, what man is there who has built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. 
if you haven't established your household yet, and we got a lot of young people in this room, if you haven't established your household, God's not necessarily calling you into battles yet. He might, who knows? David was in a battle, so it happens. But one of the things that the officers go to the thing, so one great battle strategy is let's shrink your army. So when you're terrified and outnumbered, we're going to shrink the army. That's the instruction God gives to his people. I love my God, but this is not the kind of thing that a human comes up with, right? When you're totally outnumbered and the army's bigger than you, for the soldiers to start going around saying, okay, oh, who just built a house? You can go home, right? Verse six, and if there's a man here who's planted a vineyard and not eaten from the vineyard yet, let him go to return to his house lest he die in battle and another man eat it. Anybody got crops you haven't harvested? You, all of you can just go home. We don't need you. We don't need you. We don't need you. We don't need you. Get out of here. I love this attitude. And this is a great attitude in the church for ministers, right? You get people coming in the church and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it's kind of like, look, just be blessed. Relax, chill. If God wants to use you, he's going to use you. You can't stop that. But it's not your will that's going to win this battle. Go home. Let somebody fight this battle who's ready to fight it. They got their home established. They got their crops harvested. They've prepared for the battle. They've thought ahead and done this sort of thing. So strategic power, Sun Tzu again, comes from unity and focus. I know I'm mixing Sun Tzu with the Bible. You can tell me I'm being heretical later. But this is, I think, a really kind of cool idea. What God's doing here is he's creating unity and focus. No divided, double-minded people in the army of God. If you got your head at home and there's a battle in front of you, that's double-minded. You're thinking in two directions. If you're not completely committed to what's in front of you, get out of the army. You're just going to hurt us because you're distracted. Get out of the battle quick. No shame. Notice here this isn't a sin. Sending people home because they're double-minded, that's not the, there's no sin here. It's just we don't need you in battle moments. right? Go live and prosper and all be well with you. Nanu, nanu. So... Essentially, with this crop thing, you get to establish a home, then you get to learn to make things and produce things. It takes about one to five years to get crops to harvest, especially if you're doing dates, figs, olives, anything that would be on a vineyard plant, grapes, those kinds of things. It takes about five years to get grapes to produce anything. That means after you start to get your home established and you plant your crops, you got about five years before you're eligible for military duty as an Israeli soldier. Today's Israel, you're in the army, male or female, at age 18. You go to high school, then you go to military. Um, but old school Israel, you didn't go into the military until you were much older. It was, a, it was something for adults, not for children. Verse 7, and when a man, and what man is there who's betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man marry her. If you haven't been married and had the joy of that, stay home. Go get married do that sort of thing. Build a home, establish your pro, like your produce, your vineyard, get your job in order, get a, get a trade, and then enjoy being married and having a family. And you can choose those actions because all three of those things, your house, your job, your family, are going to cause you to be double-minded when it comes to battle time. I don't want to die in battle. I got an, this beautiful woman I'm engaged to back at home. If I die in battle... You know, and then that's just a sad moment. And what soldier wants to be in the battlefield sitting in a camp when back at home is his wife waiting for him? We wouldn't do that. It's cruel and it causes someone to be double-minded and a double-minded soldier is unstable in all their ways, James 1.8. Where is your life focused might be the typology here. If you're getting ready and you want to do something for the kingdom, 
are you focused? Do you have those things in order? Do you have your house in order? Do you have your job situation in order? And do you have your family situation in order? And I don't think that just means marriage. It's just your family situation, where you live. And is all that in order? Because if those things aren't in order, then you're double-minded and you're going to be an unstable person, according to James. You're not ready to fight. So if you got all that in order, we get one more thing that we add to that list in verse 8. The officers shall speak further to the people. Notice that they're not called soldiers, they're called people. Because at this point, we don't have an army. We just have a bunch of people standing around ready to do things. And say, what man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. So get your house in order, build up your trade, marry up, and don't be a coward. How do you not be a coward when you're looking at a million-man Ethiopian army? How do you not? Here's how you do it. You just look at that million-man army and you think, that's, God, that's a lot of people God's going to wipe out, and I'd like to be here for that. It's about an attitude adjustment, and it's not seeing with your human eyes, it's seeing with the Spirit. It's seeing what God's about to do, not what you think might happen in fear, because that's what causes fear and faint-heartedness. So in God's army, numbers are less important than courage, and it just works that way. So this sets up a lot of cool Bible studies, by the way. So fear is the dread of an imagined event. If it's actually happening, that's not fear. That's like rational, reasonable thinking. But fear is imagining something that hasn't happened and thinking that it might happen. If you're fearful and you're faint-hearted, get out of the army because you're trusting in things that aren't real versus what God has promised he will do, which is real. And they're opposites. Hoping and trusting in God is the exact opposite of fearing something imaginary that might happen. So those that do battle for God should have faith in his sovereign hand that he's going to win the battle because he's going to fight it. And they should be ready to meet their maker. Like, don't go into battle if you're not ready to die because that's part of it, right? All of Jesus' disciples save one died. Grizzly, martyr-like deaths. It's part of the game. Romans 8.37 Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's a choice that we make because fear is natural. Everybody starts with fear, but you got to make a choice. To not fear death and be bold is called bravery. But God doesn't ask us to be strong and brave. He asks us to be strong and courageous. Courage is to make a decision to recognize what's in front of you and be realistic and then to do it anyways because God said to. So bravery is stupid. Courage is an intelligent and the behavior looks the same. God doesn't want brave people. He wants courageous people, right? So in Philippians 1.20, in nothing shall I be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. This is Paul talking right before he's going to die. doesn't matter what happens to me as long as Christ gets the glory, as long as he sits on his throne. Awesome. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood like a child. I thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Time to put on faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, still in 1 Corinthians, is love. Faint-hearted, it's not love. Fear is not trusting in the Lord. Faith, hope, and love are all these things. 
And when you do that, God just wins. It doesn't matter if you win or lose the argument, God still wins because you're showing love. He still gets the throne. I can't lose a battle when my entire goal is to let that person know about the hope of Jesus Christ. They might have an agenda, but I have one too, right? And if that happens and God gets the glory, whether or not I get crucified doesn't matter. It's just God's will and we're gonna move forward. So dedicate your home, build a trade, get a family established, and then get rid of fear. Stop worrying what other people think about you. Just get over it. And that's a lifetime battle. And it's something I've battled with for decades. You can ask my wife. I was always like, what are they, what should I do? And how should I do this? And what are they gonna say? And what are they gonna do? And some of that's compassion for others, but there's a thin line between that and just fearing what other people are gonna say or do. And at some point you get old enough and ugly enough where you just don't care anymore. You know, I don't care. What do I got to lose? I'm old and ugly. So let's go forward and let's do this. And some of you can even be old and good looking, but it helped me to not be. Like, I'm okay with that. And then I can move forward. And verse nine, and so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead people. Amongst that group of people, the ones that aren't scared, the grown-ups, let's make our leaders. That's where we pick our leaders from. And the same thing's true today in the church. Where do you start looking for people who are going to minister and serve others? It's the people that care more about others than themselves. They're the ones that start ministering to people just because it's in their heart. They just love people. And it's the ones that act that way without attempting to get glory, without attempting to puff themselves up. They just are honestly interested in other people's lives and what they're doing and how they're living and what's going on with them. And they care about them. They're the ones that show up to help you move on moving day. Right? That's the ministry. That's where you start looking for your leaders. So these sergeant-like roles become people that are able to coordinate and organize the size here isn't that relevant. Judges 7, of course, is the famous example of Gideon. You all know the story of Gideon? I don't see nodding heads. Gideon started with 30, 32,000 soldiers. And then he said, if any of you are scared, just go home. So he, we missed the first three steps in that one um, because they probably weren't there to start with because it was Israeli law. So then he got there. They're looking at the enemy. And he says, okay, anybody scared? You can all go home. Here's the sad part. Out of 32,000 people, 22,000 just walked away and left the other 10,000 to die. Right? That's what fear does. Fear gets you to turn your back on your best friend because you're scared of what people think, especially if your best friend's a Jesus freak. And then out of the 10,000, God said to Gideon, okay, I got one more thing to add. I want to see who's ready and who's not. Who's been preparing for this? Who even thinks like a soldier? So they do the thing at the river and you got people that just slop up the water, but in doing so, they look down at the ground and God says, get rid of all those people. I just want the people who kept their eyes up. They kept their eyes up all the time. They didn't look at the earth. They looked at what was in front of them. So after we did that, there's 300 soldiers left in Gideon's army. There's 135,000 Midianites. These are not good odds. But guess who wins? God wins. It's a foregone conclusion. So even though the Midianites were as numerous as locusts, that's not a good number, Israel still wins and God lays waste to 135,000 people in a day. Just, it's over. God wins. God doesn't need numbers. In fact, in 2 Samuel 24, David gets punished because he starts adding numbers to his army and God didn't want that. Didn't want that to happen. I'm concerned when I talk to a church leader and they, they can't stop talking about numbers. 
Here's not the book of numbers. That's a good topic. But they're just like, I got this many people at the church and we got this many th things and we're going to do this kind of recruitment thing and we're going to get these kind of... And it's like, wow, that's just not... God says you should be looking to love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all you should be doing. If God adds numbers to that, great. Like in the book of Acts, it says God added to the church daily. It doesn't say that the disciples went out and did saturate and recruited people. That is not what the Bible says. It says God added to their numbers daily. And he does that if he wants to. So who's God going to use to advance his church? And when we go into battle and we're trying to advance the kingdom of God in our, in our communities, how many people does God need to do that? Is it about your numbers? Is it about how young people are? And you look in the word of God and see something that's kind of a principle we're going to keep seeing. God doesn't need a fundraising campaign to do his work. He doesn't need our money. What he does need is a really small group of people that have no fear and only love the Lord and they keep their eyes on the Lord with everything they do. That's how God fights his battles. And I get really juiced when I think of this. This is like a brave heart kind of thing. Yes, there wasn't a guy in that little Scottish army that looked scared. They were ready to fight. And that's where we find ourselves sometimes when we're doing this. It says lead the people in that verse. The word lead there in the Hebrew is rosh, What's interesting here is when we hear lead the people, we think it's a verb. It's not a verb. It's a noun. So put on your English class hats for that one. Leading is not about doing things in this verse. It's about being something. Lead the people, the, the word rosh is about heading people or being the root word from shaking something. Being the thing that is at top or at the chief or summit of something that is the balance of something. So think about when you like tip a plate on a stick. The plate is the head of the stick, but it has the weight that takes that stick in different directions. So when it says lead the people, it, 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 it's not translated this way because we wouldn't understand it, but it's to head the people, head the people. And it's not a verb, it's, a, it's that you are that thing at the top that helps the people move in a different direction. Lead the people. How do we lead the people? We have our households in order. We have our careers in order. We have our families in order. We don't have fear of what other people think and what they do. We don't have a faint-hearted soul. We do things with boldness and courage, and people follow. It's kind of awesome. And it comes out as love. So those that are without fear are the ones that are the summit or the chief or the front of the people is another way to interpret Roche. They're the front. That is what they are, noun. So we get to live a life without worrying when we find people that are the kind of people God wants to be leading in our lives. We become that kind of person when we start to live that way in our lives. Jesus says, life is more than food. The body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens that they don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom for barns, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? That's a good battle speech to say before you're about to go fight. You know, you're not going to add an hour to your life. God wants you to die today, you're going to die. And if you don't want you to die, you're not going to die. It's up to God. So you dedicate your home, you build a trade, you care for a spouse, you promote courage, and God wins. It's super simple, but it's not what my flesh wants to do. Verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace. Wait, I thought the God of the Bible was this cruel, mean God that kills everybody. 
Yet their command to the Israeli armies, the law is, when you go near a city to fight it, you, you then proclaim an offer to peace. For context, this is one rule of law. We're going to get into rules of, rules of war for the, when they're taking the promised land, and it's two separate sets of rules. And God modifies these rules with different generals throughout the rest of the Bible. So this is the baseline that they should approach if God's not talking to them. This is how they should go forward. When they, God is saying, I want you to do this with this particular city, like Jericho, they're supposed to march around, they do it because God says to do it. And that's on top of what they're already supposed to do. When you go near a city, you're supposed to offer peace to it. You can have peace. And it shall be that if they accept the offer of your peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. They pay taxes, they become part of your empire. That easy. Nobody dies. So you march up with your little group of 300 men and say, we're here to conquer you. And then they laugh from the wall like little peas and they throw things down at you. And they think that's really cute because you're not that intimidating looking. And you say, it's you versus God and we're just saying we're here to conquer you. And then you watch God work. And he does amazing things. It's between you and God. All I got to do is stand on the word of God. Verse 12, now if the city will not make peace with you, because this sometimes happens, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, I just love how it skips from 12 to 13. And when the Lord your God delivers it in your hands, like that's a foregone conclusion. When it happens, not if it happens, it's when it happens, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But when the women and the little ones and the livestock and all that's in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives to you. So this pertains to cities outside the promised land. When we get to the inside the cities, the difference is God wants them to take nothing from those cities. They're destroying everything in those cities. But in these cities, you offer peace, option one. They can be tax-paying, tribute-paying people, and there's no battle. It's all over. Um, that when that doesn't happen, they're going to kill all the people that stood against God in that situation. And they'll besiege it. Besieging is a military strategy. Some of you know this. I know Grant, my son's got to hear this now for 20-some years. Sieging a city is interesting. Mostly when you siege a city, you surround the whole thing, right? Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. You're going to run out of food. So you can starve to death or you can submit, and that's the end of the siege. That's a siege. Not for Israelites. History shows that Israelites did sieging a little bit differently than everybody else. So when we see the word siege here, it got carried out this way. Israelites would siege a city on three sides, leaving one side wide open. The reason they did this is that they could stop people from coming into the city, but anybody who wanted to leave the city had a straight shot to leave. They all had a chance to take off. So anybody who's left in the city was defying what God was saying to happen there. And they were choosing to defy God, even though God's word said something else. So you want to stay there? You want to pick that battle? You can. But anybody who wanted to get out, got out. So the other piece of a siege is that it could end at any time. The entire city could just take up and leave. And then there's no battle and there's no fight. God's law consistently trumps the law of the land and the world when it comes to mercy and giving people a chance to live. So when we see these horrible situations, like there's going to be a fight. And if you think you can get through your life without having a fight over the issues of Christ, you're dreaming. It's just you need to live a little longer. You're going to get into it with people at some point, but always give them an out. Always have peace as your primary goal. Always have that we're not going to argue and fight is our chief priority as Christians. We don't want the fight. We want peace. So God says, blessed are the peacemakers. 
we always give people a chance to save their dignity. We don't ever bring someone to Christ because they lost an argument. Nobody ever has gotten saved because they lost an argument. You get saved because the Holy Spirit's doing something and you feel like you need God. Either you're convicted of your own sin and you need God, or you're totally enchanted with the love and the power of the love that God has. And those two things bring people to Christ. So for me, it was fear. <laughs> it was, oh my God, I need your help. That kind of thing. Israel sieged the city on three sides. It's a topology for our spiritual life. We always, if we're going to have to get into it with people, and I love it, like I'm thinking about this while I'm thinking about this phone call on Monday. If we have to get into it with people, we always leave them an out. How can we get through this and get out the other side? And you try to determine if there has to be a fight or not, even when you're in the middle of a siege. We don't cringe from it. We lean into it because God says to. He says that we should defend his word. So we do. And we don't hesitate. We're not faint-hearted about it. We're happy to get into it. If you want to fight, we can do that. And I'm ready to stand and defend my Christ in any place and any time with anybody. But I really choose peace. I'd rather play board games with you than argue theology with you, right? Because you're going to see through our love for one another. Like when we finish the Bible study, when you guys all are loving on each other and talking and hanging out, that's when you get to see what Christ looks like. It's how Christians love one another. That's why we study the Bible. We want to get better at that thing. So it's a tough passage for early believers. Paul clarifies this. In the first century, the new believers didn't know what to do with this very difficult chapter about warfare. Well, wait a second. We're supposed to not kill people. And Paul's like, yeah, okay. The whole Old Testament can be read as a typology. So this is what Paul says, I think about this idea of warfare and what Christians do with this. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. Because we're not, God's not carving out a piece of real estate for us. He's saying our kingdom's actually not of this world. So when we fight battles, we're not trying to take geography, but we are trying to take spiritual territory. Make sense? So here's what Paul says. For although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war again according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments, and every proud thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. This is the kind of thing that will get me off the internet right now. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's our, I love how Paul sums this up. Like, it's almost like Paul was blessed to clarify this chapter for us. That's what we do. We take battle against arguments. God has blessed some people uniquely with the ability to argue. There's one of them in every family. And it's like they're that way since they're three. They love a good argument, but they got to pull back. We don't battle with the flesh because in their flesh, they love the argument for themselves. That person's got to mature by not loving that so much, but using those gifts to stand against foolish lies that the world wants to throw out and to do it with love and to do it with compassion because we want people to meet Jesus. And you got people that are born not to argue. They, anything but an argument like conflict adverse people, right? And sometimes they got to learn to not be so faint-hearted when they have to be in those conversations with people. Those strongholds that are the arguments of the enemy that stand against what God's Bible says. Those are the things we have to deal with. So when we hear lies, we speak truth. Not faint-hearted, not anxiously getting into it. When people attack God, we defend God. We are soldiers. When people refute a peaceful discussion, we get out the siege weapons. All right, 
let's camp and let's have this conversation. When children don't establish their homes, their jobs, their families in love, we send those people home. They're not our spot, they're not our spokespeople, right? Don't attack my kids and don't send my kids out to be your soldier, right? Grant Katie, you're not kids anymore. You can go out and be soldiers if you want to. When the people of God are double-minded, they shouldn't be on the battlefield. Just shouldn't be. When those people are double-minded, we single-mindedly take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul also clarifies that. When those who are act in fear and they cower in worry, we act with courage and shout that God wins. God's already won. It's his battle. He'll win it. We just get to clean up and plunder, right? So we get to enjoy the benefits of a battle already won. How nice is that? So the word plunder in these verses, I'll get back to the verses, is bazaz. First of all, great Jewish word, bazaz. It means to gather or to take or to pull in pieces. So when they come into a city and God's defeated it, they just gather what's left up. In the same way, when there's a battle that has to be fought, our job's to gather what's left and take those things that are precious and try to redeem them. When someone's destroyed or broken or hurt, we clean those pieces up. We gather those things. We assemble those things. We put them back together because there's a soul there. We take those things that are of value and of worth when we plunder, right? This is not pirate plundering. This is Jewish plundering. And you go through that city and you make sure that things that are of value don't get destroyed. You take those things. Matthew 13, 30. I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus actually tells his disciples to go out into the world and harvest and gather and plunder. And take those people that need to be into the kingdom and try to bring them into the kingdom. Verse 15, back in Deuteronomy. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are far from you, which are not the cities of these nations, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. So there's a different rule for the promised land. God actually wants the Israelites to have their own country. So he doesn't want idol worship in the country. We talked about that earlier in Deuteronomy. This is a big deal. So these people don't get to stick around because they'll keep their idol worship with them. So on these cities, they got to go. But you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So these folks are still here after 40 years of Israel walking around the desert with 2 million people. They're still there. Um, God commands them to move into this territory. Uh, they come in and they do it city by city. So at any point during the conquest that we're going to see in Joshua, at any point, the next city down the road could take off and not have to die. But they start moving through. Even Jericho, which is the first city, they have an opportunity to get the heck out of there. They're warned and they don't move. But you'd say, well, where are they supposed to go? They can go anywhere. It's a big world and it's not that populated yet. But this little piece of real estate, God's kind of designated for them. And there's something that's happened. Remember the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Amorites? These are the people that were left behind when, um, when Joseph and Israel went to Egypt. So these are people that were cousins of the Israelites. They knew them. They knew Yahweh. They didn't doubt the flood. They had grandparents that had told those stories. 
So these are people that had corrupted the worship of Yahweh into something really twisted in a fairly short amount of time in world history terms. So the religions of these people um, were something that had denigrated or been corrupted from what would have been the worship of a true God. So nothing that breathes will remain of those people. When they're in defiance, there's nothing there that's worth plundering. When we meet people that are in defiance against a holy God, they don't have much to offer us. And I think that's one of those things that sometimes Christians can be tempted to try to see things of value in worldviews that are absolutely in opposition to God. And that's a, a kind of a, a teaching that's going around right now. And it's not a teaching that necessarily coincides with, with at least this chapter in the Bible. You'd have to go to other places to maybe start to argue that. And there's places for that. But at least in this place, if people are in defiance against God, there's nothing that God wants us to keep from that environment. I will think of this as there's really nothing on Oprah that I need for my life. Like there's not much redeeming there. You can have your Oprah, but for me and mine, like I just don't need that in my life. And there's other teachers out there too that they're not going off the word of God. They're going off the word of themselves. And there's not much there that I need. So it's not like I'm going to go out of my way, but I'm also not going to be plundering anything from their worldviews. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We demolish arguments and every proud thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to Christ. If we do that, we don't need much that the world has when it comes to intellectualism. We just need what God has to say in our lives. And we read things and become intelligent because God's given us a brain and we want to use it. Therefore, we absorb other things. But we have to know where our heart is and what we need to stick to, and we stick to God's word. So this is how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. That's the best example of this. Jesus did not try to plunder the Pharisees and make friends with them. He didn't try to redeem anything from the Pharisaical kind of world. Um, he just dealt with them and called them false teachers, and he made war with them. So if you want to do a great Bible study on warfare, study every interaction Jesus had with the Pharisees. It is not the interactions of love and acceptance, and he was not seeker-friendly. It's just not how he operated. He told them the truth, and they could do what they want. That said, there were Pharisees like Nicodemus that sought Jesus out and asked him questions and got to understand the kingdom of God. So it wasn't that Jesus pushed people away. They all had a chance to get out of the siege. But Jesus came. He warned them. He said, I'm going to take this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And then he did. Did what he said he was going to do. Peter dealt with false teachers too. But there were false prophets among the people. He's talking about Christians here. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So in the second century, there was a group called the Gnostics. So we're going to get into some philosophical history here tonight. Because where does the church fought its battles? Since Christ, there's been a major heretical battle for every generation of the church. It's kind of cool. Not the heresies, but the fact that Christians and the church has done battle against these strongholds, and they keep coming back. So the Gnostics believed that there was a secret hidden knowledge. Okay, this is like Dan Brown's, you know, the, help me, what's the name of the book? What? The Da Vinci Code. That really there's a secret code in the Bible and that Jesus actually had kids. That's the secret code that's not in the Bible, right? I know that was a total giveaway, but it's not that good of a book. Um, a spoil, huge spoiler alert. So 
The Gnostics were the intelligentsia of their day. They wrote libraries of books, right? The Library of Alexandria was filled with entire sections of Gnostics. So you could come and say, I'd like to read the Gnostics. And the librarian would be all upset and say, which Gnostic? There's tons of them. And they believed a few things, um, and they initially called themselves Christians. But they went, started just going off what the Word of God says. And here's where they went off. They said, God is too big and too uncomprehensible to know. You can't know God. Yet the Bible says God's personal and he wants a personal relationship with people. They also would say, you can't bother with the material creation, what they called the demiurge. Like this earth isn't important. Gnostics believe that our heightened sense had to be more spiritual, that we give up all this earthly stuff so that we can be esoteric in some way. So they would seek the inner divine spark because everybody, according to the Gnostics, had a divine spark inside of them. All you had to do was find it. And you could look for years and not find a divine spark. And the narcissist would say, well, you're just not smart enough to find it. You're just not that special. But to keep looking, there's got to be a spark in there somewhere because there's a spark of the divine in all of us. This was Gnostics, right? They called it the Numoa. And I call it Disney, but it's just a different thing. Um, they, they never debated that Jesus died and rose from the dead. What they debated was, Jesus was never really physical. He was an apparition that everyone thought was physical. And that way, he never really died on the cross. And that way, his resurrection was manifest because he never really was a physical human being. He just appeared and Mary was like, oh, magical baby, right? So that's how that happened. So here are folks that are defining Christ the way they want to define Christ. They've made stuff up that's in direct contradiction to the Bible. And what does the church do? They come back to the Word of God. And so you get these heroes of the early church, Origen, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, he died, Eusebius, and they had a fight on their hands and as the, the, you know, the puzzle room theologians started attacking the simple face of the truth and making it more comfortable for themselves. And obviously the Gnostics had classrooms that you paid a lot of money to get into to hear their secret knowledge that only they could reveal to you. So it was a, it was a pyramid scheme, right? So these heroes of the faith started just decimating those arguments and they kept going back to the word of God saying, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. These are the things that are true. And, and, and at this point, the Gnostics are a footnote in history. They've been utterly demolished, or have they? Right? Maybe there's a secret group of Gnostics still hiding out, which is the plot line for like a number of movies, right? So in verse 17, it says, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Gnostics. Or in the third century, it was the Macionites or the Marcion, Marcionites? Marcionites. That's how we're going to say it tonight. They believed the Old Testament God was not the same God as the New Testament God. Two different gods. And we just don't understand that they're really different personalities. In the fifth century, it was Pelagius. Uh, they believe that good deeds are how you got into heaven. If you just did enough good things, God would weigh that against your balance, right? That kind of turned into the worldview of the Catholic Church, right? You do things and then you're right with God. The seventh century was the Nestorians. Jesus is not the same person as the Son of God. They're different people. Son of God and Jesus are different identities. In the 12th century, it was the Cathars. The physical world is evil, so we don't eat meat or dairy. They were the first vegetarians, 
right? It was the Cathars. In the 14th century, it was what the free spirit movement or the free spirit nuts. These people believed when you're a Christian, you're above the law. Therefore, there's no law. So this is like groundhogs on the prairie. There's no law on the land and you can do whatever you want because God will forgive everything you do, which is in direct opposition to what Paul said, right? Should we sin so grace can abound? No, heck no. In the 16th century, the Catholics made a major shift in that papal authority superseded biblical authority. This made a lot of Catholics mad and you had really a 200 year battle between the Catholic church and people that started to break off from the Catholic church, Lutherans being the first amongst them, right? Nope. And they nailed the thesis to the door and said, I got some problems with what the Catholic church is believing. Church keeps doing it. 17th and 18th century, we'll get a little more personal. There was this worldview in the Christian church that God had destined other nations to have certain sizes. It was called manifest destiny. America is guilty of this one. And the belief was that God had ordained that America would own this territory and God ordained the shape of all countries, which there's nothing in the Bible that says that. In the 19th century, we had another group of people, initially Christian scientists, that started to follow somebody called Darwin. And you got a worldview that popped up. Again, libraries of books. This is the intelligentsia of the era that you can get life from non-life, or as some people say, you go from goo to zoo to the you. It's true, right? And that's the argument. So in the 20th century, you get Christian socialists, which are kind of the movement in America today and around the world. Christian socialists are the opposite of the Gnostics. They believe the physical world is more important than the spiritual world. You have to take care of people's bodies before you can take care of their spirits. It's not what the Bible says. It's quite the opposite. Every generation of Christians has had their battle to fight. And I'm, making a, I'm taking a, a long detour on this to make that one point. We're not exempt from battles. It's part of God's word that we're going to be in them. He teaches us how to be in them. And the goal of being in them is that we trust in the Lord and we love the Lord. We don't become soldiers that constantly think about war. We become Christ-like apostles and we act totally different. And we don't add up our armies and get ready for the battles. We diminish our preparation for the battle to let the Lord have the glory, right? So in 2 Corinthians 11:13, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. What's the simplicity of Christ? He died, he rose again as a propitiation for your sins because you have sins and they need to be paid for according to the law. I'm so sorry. Like, that's what I bark at people about as a teacher. Can you mute me? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the simplicity of the gospel. But we humans want to make it more difficult than that. We want to make it more complex than that. And if you don't understand how it's more complex than that, it must be that you're pretty dumb and ignorant and naive. But it really is just that simple. And the wisdom of the world can't counteract the wisdom of Deuteronomy 6.4, the wisdom of John 3.16. It's just that simple. If you need it to be fancier, it's because you're not just content with what God's given you. He's given you everything. But as humans, we're not content with everything. We want more. So God plus two sentences 
is greater than 20 centuries of human thinking. I think that's kind of cool. God plus one equals the majority. And God's math just works. And in those situations, God wins. All of those different intellectual movements I just named, I hope that like half of them you hadn't heard of. They're, they've been demolished because the simplicity of the gospel remains and persists through the ridiculousness of the world. Verse 19, when you besiege a city for a long time, this was the Gnostics, while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. That would not be an accident. If you can eat them, do not cut them down to use in the siege. For the tree in the field is man's food. And only the trees which you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it's subdued. Hard to add much to that. Leave the trees alone, right? Leave them alone. No matter where we do battle, if there are fruitful and innocent lives that need to be spared, we spare them. Things that bear fruit have value. So the war goes uh, back again. This is the Bible restraining wanton destruction. No other ancient culture has a rule like this in there, that you protect and you preserve life because even the life of fruit trees is valuable in war. And if you look at World War II and the absolute destruction that happened on the battlefields, the absolute carnage that happened in the Civil War, like humans don't fight wars like God asks us to fight wars with civility, with self-control, with soldiers that don't just wantonly wreck things. So if you can eat them, don't cut them down. Every command of God respects life, even the commands when he has to kill or execute someone in judgment for a society. The idea is that you're protecting the society when you do that. So these trees, part of why you protect these trees is in the Middle East, fruit trees take 10 to 15 years to grow. A battle might take a year, even if it's a long siege, verse 19. So you're sacrificing the long-term benefit of these trees for the short-term benefit of building a siege work against a city. And God says not to do that. We never sacrifice the long-term for the short-term. We think about that. We, take, we hold some restraint if we're going to do those things. Date trees take four to seven years before they ever bear fruit. It takes, so if you take out these trees in the Middle East, you really starve those people for a generation. It's very hard to replace some of these. Olive trees take about five years for first fruit to appear. Um, and it takes for an olive tree 65 to 80 years for it to be a full grown tree. Extremely slow, slow growth tree. So when you go into a Middle Eastern market and they're making little chess pieces out of olive wood, ew, they shouldn't, that's kind of a precious tree. They shouldn't be doing that. Like not at that level. So I hope they didn't cut down one that bore fruit. So it takes a long time to grow these trees. Israel's very careful about people and saving people. Even the Gibeonites came to the Israelites with deceit and the Israelites honored the commitment because the Gibeonites weren't making battle with them. So they didn't kill them even though they were some of the people that were supposed to be moved out of the land. Rahab is a Moabitess, right? Joshua 6, her whole family gets spared because she chooses not to fight the Israelites. So this isn't about like the Israelites going out and ethnically cleansing an entire place. What they're doing is they're getting rid of the people that are in defiance of God. And the people that can honor God, like Rahab, that whole family comes in, actually ends up in the line of Jesus. So we preserve those things that bear fruit and we keep them. Food is like the word of God as a typology, right? Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Ezekiel 3.3, 3, 
And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. God's word is his will on this earth. It's precious. So when we get to this piece of Deuteronomy that's kind of expounding on warfare and the, the, the law, his word is his will. When we soak it in, we start to love him more. And he makes it sweet. And that's kind of an amazing thing. So when you think about these trees and not cutting them down because they have fruit and they have value, that's one of those ideas when we think of any kind of food image, we should be thinking of the word of God, right? When we soak in God's word because we love him, he makes it sweet because he loves us. He didn't have to make God's word sweet. He could make it miserable, but it's not miserable. It's filled with delightful little things all over the place, like the meaning for the word plunder. Jesus finds a fig tree in Mark 12. And this is really interesting because when you take this law about the trees and you compare it to what Jesus did with a fig tree, you know the story I'm getting at here? It adds a whole kind of light to what's going on here. So this is a fig tree that's outside Jerusalem. It would be one of the trees that if Jerusalem was besieged, that tree should not be cut down if it bears fruit. But if it doesn't bear fruit, it should be turned into siege weaponry, right? It's part of what can be destroyed. So... In Mark 11, Jesus says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. He goes up to the fig tree and there's no fruit on it. And so he gets mad. And it almost looks like Jesus just got like a temper in this scene, right? But if you put it in light of this law about not cutting down trees, in between this story, it sandwiches another piece. So if a tree doesn't bear fruit, you cut it down and you use it as fuel to take down the strongholds of the enemy. So... Let it join the company of the Parasites, the Gnostics, the Marcionites. It goes on the scrap heap of history. If it's not bearing fruit, it gets destroyed. And it just goes the way of that. So much more for those in the promised land that twist God's will to themselves. If you've got human beings that aren't bearing fruit and they're claiming to be in that promised land or they're taking residence within the Christian church and they don't bear fruit, they shouldn't be representing the body. So he, Jesus then yells at the tree, no commentary on it from Mark whatsoever. Then he goes up to the temple mount and he sees all the greedy people in the middle of the temple. He sees all these people that have come into God's house and they're making a mess of it. They're turning it into a house of thieves, right? And you remember Jesus gets mad, starts throwing things around, kicks everybody out, starts cleaning it out. So he literally curses at the tree. He walks up the hill. It's about a 10-minute walk. And he starts yelling at the people in the temple that have turned it into a place of commerce. Same story, right one verse after the other. That's sometimes the danger of Sunday school is it breaks these stories up and you don't see how they're connected to one another. So in Mark 11, verse 20, the next morning as they passed, this is good writing by Matthew, the next morning as they passed is right after the temple scene, they passed by that fig tree that he had cursed and the disciples noticed it and it had withered from the roots up in one day. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Spiritual warfare here is that Jesus calls out the fruitlessness of the tree and it withers and it dies. He does the same thing with the Levitical priesthood. He walks up to the temple he calls out that they are fruitless people and the Levitical priesthood is about to die. 
and the power of the, the Mosaic priesthood is about to end. It's going to wither from the roots up, and what's going to replace it is a new creation in Jesus Christ and the church. But they're about to die. And he has this moment with the tree, and the disciples are noticing, you yelled at the tree, and it withered from the roots up. The natural thought is, what's going to happen to the temple? Because you just yelled at the temple 20 times worse than the off-handed comment to this tree. What in the world is going to happen to that temple? If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, 1 Corinthians 16.22. There is a point where if you're not on God's team, you're in trouble. And if you love people and you're in battle with them, this is part of how we think. We don't want to be at war with people. We leave the back door open because we love them. We don't want them to be in that situation. And people say, well, what a cruel God that some people are going to go to heaven and some people are going to go to hell. It's like, not that cruel, because if you want to go to heaven, just say, I want to go to heaven. Right? It's not that hard. He's calling everyone to him. So if you're concerned about where you're going to go, like, just say a prayer and get it over with. And don't wait on that. It's a really easy choice. So these siege weapons are right there, and that's what gets made. Jesus is going to take those people as examples, almost. To say this is what's going to happen to fruitless people. They're going to be like the Gnostics and the Marcionites, and they're just going to end up on the scrap heap of history as the church continues to grow and move forward despite these people that want to take it over. It just keeps happening over and over again. The simple truth of Jesus just wins. God just wins. And he doesn't do it because of our strength of arms. He does it because he's God and he's already won the war. So he teaches them right after this story about the tree. It's really awesome. Go back and read it. Honestly, get back to, to Mark and read chapter 11. It goes right back to the tree, the temple, the tree's withered. The next thing he does is he goes to his disciples and he teaches them how to pray, how to love, and how to forgive people. He gives them the weapons. Prayer, love, forgiveness. And he teaches them how to do those things. So we have that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a no-holds-barred hold, battle. I'll take my love, forgiveness, and prayer against your intelligentsia, aggressiveness, and hate. Let's see who wins, because me plus God wins, and it wins every time. So that's kind of the, the idea. So this was a night of battle talk tonight, um, how we wage war, how we even start to think about it, and I didn't even talk about the armor of God, because that's like a whole sermon series. And you all thought I was going to go there tonight, but I didn't. There's so much about how to do battle for God that confounds our intelligence until you try it and you do it and you love someone to the point where they can't understand why you love them in the face of their hatred, right? Or if you're really, really nice and you never get into conflict, I totally admire you because you're kind of way ahead of the game on this stuff if you never get into it with people and all they see from you is love all the time and that kind of compassion. So let's pray to be better warriors and if you're not in the battle right now and you're still working on your home life, your family life, getting your job situation stable, good for you. That's part of what God wants for you too. That's not bad and it's not a sin. And I think sometimes people like me can make people feel guilty because, well, I'm not doing all that stuff. Of course you're not. You're taking care of the things God told you to take care of. Take care of those things before you get into the battle so that you don't have anything to hold on to or anything that makes you double-minded when you're in those situations. Amen? All right. Dear Lord, thank you for chapter 20 in Deuteronomy. Lord, we as humans are such fools. And in all likelihood, we would have been part of the 
31,700 people that didn't make it in Gideon's army. Lord, I just pray that you help us to become one of the 300. Lord, help us to be single-minded in our service to you in all of our words, deeds, and actions, that we give up our life uh, and lose it for, for your name's sake, Lord, that we hold you in the highest of regards. Lord, those are strong, completely unforgiving words, Lord, that you spoke to us. There is one way to heaven. There is one way and there is one truth and there is one life, Lord, and it's so simple a child can understand it. Lord, help us to stand on those words and those promises that we know, that we've been reading, that you've told us, that you've shown us, because Egypt. And we just know, Lord, that you have won battles in the past and you win them in the future. Lord, we know we have nothing to fear and that fear is not of God and it's not what you command us to do. Help us to set our eyes on you no matter what this world is coming up with next. And Lord, we just want to serve you with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole soul. Lord, we want to love you more than we love ourselves. We want to love our neighbors, Lord, and have compassion, uh, Lord, in any way that we can, because at one point we were lost too, Lord, and we want to always leave a door to peace open with everyone in our life. Help us to have shalom with people. Lord, the way you do battle is not how this world does battle, and sometimes that doesn't seem fair. Sometimes it feels like the enemy is large and there's a million of them and they are insurmountable. And Lord, we haven't even prepped for those fights. But Lord, we know that you've already won. And if we trust in you and turn to you and hand all of that over to you, Lord, we can stand by and watch what you're going to do next. Lord, we pray especially for our country, for the wisdom of this age. Lord, we just pray that you bring peace to our people and to our land. Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to reign in our hearts first so that we do not have fear or we are faint-hearted in the face of the battles of today, but we have great hope in what you will do next. Lord, help us to connect with and know the stories around us of, of those that are coming to faith, those that are finding healing, the broken that are being healed, the blind that are seeing. Lord, we want to be part of that community and we want to be part of your people. Uh, we want to be soldiers for your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are establishing their homes, building their jobs, enjoying their marriages, or even finding marriages. Lord, I just pray that you bless those people. That's a wonderful time of life. And that you give grace to those people before you put them into the army. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you bless them in those processes so that they can be single-minded. They can move forward with the confidence of their income and their family uh, and their house. Uh, Lord, that you can bless them in those ways. Lord, I pray for those of us that are older that we never shy away from protecting your name and your truth and that we do it with love and grace, just like uh, we've seen in the Bible, Lord, that we are not afraid and we don't uh, back off of those situations, but we always have the door open for Nicodemus to come and meet us in the night and have those conversations. Lord, we love you. We want to be more like you. Teach us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.